Welcome to the EMS on the Mountain podcast, a show for those interested in austere and wilderness medicine. This podcast provides insight into the unique aspects and challenges of bringing modern EMS into wilderness and austere environments. All right, folks, welcome back to another episode of EMS on the Mountain. Once again, I'm Sean, and joined as always is my partner, Mike. Tonight, we're going to talk to you about the attributes of a good WEMS or Wilderness EMS provider. So, so far, we've talked a lot about what makes Wilderness EMS, austere medicine, et cetera, unique and different. So that leads us into the next question is, is there anything that makes the Wilderness EMS, the austere provider, different? And if you talk to Mike and I, we both agree that, yeah, there's a difference. So with that, we're going to have Mike lead us off. What do you got for us, Mike? All right. So there's definitely a few differences. Some of them can be uh, a little daunting for folks that are stepping into this at first. Other things may not be all that different. The first big bucket, the first big thing we have to think about is your medical skills. Unfortunately, depending on the definition of austere that you're operating in, your skill set is going to need to be, I'll call it top-notch. Is that a pretty decent way of explaining it? You typically do not get a whole lot of access to medical control. You, you do not get a lot of uh, phone-a-friend sort of opportunities a lot of times. There's a lot of very rural, very austere environments that you just, you simply don't get to phone a doc. And so you need to operate based on your protocols and have some comfort in that you are a pretty decent practitioner and are comfortable practicing for extended periods of time without a whole lot of additional help. That also means, quite frankly, that a lot of places have an extended scope of care. Depending on, there's a general rule of thumb. This is not a hard and fast rule, but it is not, it is not completely uncommon to think about EMS. The bigger the system, generally the smaller scope of practice. The smaller, more rural, all the way out into austere environments, you typically end up having a larger scope of practice with a greater clinical latitude because you are providing care to people for a longer duration of time from a further distance from definitive care than an urban EMS system that has 10, 15, 20 minute transport times on the outside and simply does not need to do long-term care sorts of things that an austere provider does. Uh, and then finally, it is, it is a skill set in and of itself to be able to think on your feet and improvise as needed. Think through the use cases of various tools, various pieces of equipment, and sometimes medications that are not the typical flip to page 73 in your protocol book. It says, I administer one milligram of this medication. I administer one milligram. I get them to the doctor place. Any of the adverse effects of being administered a full milligram versus a half a milligram, for example, of this random medication that I'm making up in my head won't be experienced by me and can easily be managed in a care facility. However, in the austere environment, I may be with them for another 11 hours. And I need to think through those problems. And that's really, that's kind of the crux. You have to be able to think through the problems. And I, I think Sean kind of refers to this as the long game. Everything you do takes longer and it, you're going to be with them longer. And it, the reality is that your problem solving and your medical physiological knowledge just has to be on point because there's a lot of places you can end up in an austere environment where you simply do not have access to phone a friend. You are the highest level provider. You have the protocols that you're allowed to operate within. You have the medications that you're carrying on your back, and you got to make do with what you got for the period of time you're with your patient. There's also some additional things beyond medicine 
that we really truly need to take into consideration. The domain, the environment, for sure. Do you have horses at your avail? Do you know how to take care of horses? Are you coming in on an aircraft, helicopter, or fixed wing? Once you're on that helicopter fixed wing, this isn't just quote unquote flight medic life where you step off the helicopter in a flight suit, walk 20 feet, get in an ambulance, take care of a guy, put him back in your helicopter and fly away. I actually know a guy, Sean and I both know a guy that operates for a a flight company out of Colorado. Uh, He's on the YouTubes, by the way. And he actually ends up doing star work sometimes where he ends up getting launched into the mountains and then they land in the mountains and then he has to get out of the helicopter and hike a goodly distance to provide care to people. Are you up for that? Do you know how to drive a UTV? Do you know how to ride a horse? I mean, I don't, but I don't operate with horses. Some people do. Are you an expert or are you at least pretty good in your particular environment? Sean and I are in the Mid-Atlantic here in the United States. We have, I mean, I am no botanist. That is not my skill set. But I have a pretty decent working knowledge of things I should or should not touch and how to manage myself in the wilderness setting. You kind of have to be a decent backcountry survivalist or specialist in your environment because you might need to make shelters or understand that that's a poisonous thing. You probably shouldn't touch it. And that leads right into shelter and survival skills. Can you build a shelter? Do you have anything on your back to build a shelter? Can you build a a lean-to or a, uh, what did we call those, Sean? Back in our SAR days, the tree fort thingies that we used to have to build for training. Oh, I don't remember. Lean-to is one of them. And then the... uh, There was like a lean-to with the tarp and then you built like a thing with like tree branches and stuff. Can you build a fire? And I know that sounds silly, but in 2022, I know a lot of people that can't build a fire. (laughs) Do you know simple things like signaling? Can you use an old school signal mirror to signal aircraft? Do you understand basic signaling? Do you know how to talk to a helicopter on the radio, right? Do you know how to use clock orientation so that you can vector them into your location and tell them where you are in relation to them while they're hovering overhead looking for you because they're here to hoist your patient? And then a, a bit of a lost art, land navigation. I think everyone that's going into a backcountry environment should have a basic map and compass skill set. I think sometimes teams lose sight of the fact that we are the experts. We are the rescuers. So if your GPS dies or you lose it, can you pull out an old school 124 map, do a little map and compass work and generally understand where you are or get coordinates to individuals that are coming to get you based on just a map and compass? That is typically something, I mean, old school paramedics would tell you that they, they know how to read ADC box maps, but that's that in and of itself is a skill set as well, right? That's a dying skill as well. I remember when I got started in this that you'd get dispatched to a box with a page number and you actually had to flip to the book and find the street name and then navigate your driver to the call, right? We don't do that anymore either. It's all in computers. Land navigation in the backcountry is really map and compass work, understanding declination and how to read a map and, and terrain navigation and those sorts of things. Uh, and then finally, all of the other ancillary skills that would be considered In an urban fire rescue combined system, they would be referred to as like trucky skills, right? Tech rescue, hoist operations, rigging. These are, Sean and I just executed a rescue last week. I had to do some rope work. Sean uh, did a whole bunch of of surveying for me while I was with the Stokes. That's just a normal kind of skill set you got to have because sometimes you got to tie a rope to a thing and provide some belay to get a guy out out of the hole. So there are some additional skills beyond medicine that you have to be aware of, along with I'll put self, this may be further on in your outline, I'm not completely sure, but self-care, right? Do you know how to take care of yourself in the woods? Do you, are you a backcountryist? And you don't have to be Bear grills sort of, I stay in a hotel at night, but I pretend that I camp in the woods sort of guy. 
but you do have to be able to take care of blisters on your feet and know how to keep yourself dry and change your socks and simple things like that because you're going to be out there for a while as well. So all of that kind of comes into play in something that we don't usually see in an urban situation. Yeah, so you hit a couple of good points. The big one, medically, you have to be solid just because like Mike mentioned, in the environment we work in, you don't always get the internet connectivity to pull out your smartphone and Google something you're not familiar with. So if it's not something you already know, you're probably not going to know it. There's only so far pocket references are going to take you. So you really have to know your, know your medicine. You have to know it. And that thinking through the problem, the long game, my kid on it, right? I don't have to think through 15 or 20 minutes of patient care. I have to think through four to 18 hours, maybe longer of patient care. Like you hit on, I have so much in my pack when it comes to drugs. And I have to know if what I started administering now, will that last me for the longest foreseeable duration I care with my patient? If it's not, I might need to start thinking about something else, whether that's a resupply or a different care alternative. And then and actually, you know, something that I just realized, we talk about it a little bit in paramedic school on whole, but uh, potentiation and understanding which medications potentiate themselves and how they act for different people and having a pretty good understanding of metabolic rates and how different people react to things. I can think of a number of times you and I have been together on rescues and we've actually had a conversation about, well, let's start with ketamine here and then fentanyl and then maybe we'll potentiate or throw some tortol in there. But we're thinking through almost a, a mixologist sort of framework to provide the best care to the patient that you typically don't end up doing in a front yeah. country environment. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. It's like, oh, my, my fentanyl lasts me 15, 20 minutes. Perfect. That's all I need. Yeah. When I've only got two files of fentanyl and I've got to take care of you for eight plus hours. I need to really be thinking about how I'm going to manage your pain. If you really need it, we need to manage it well. Lastly, just on one other Mike's topics, your skills beyond medicine, like land navigation, you'll hear us hit on this off and on. Getting to your patient is paramount. You obviously know how to get there or have to know how to get there. But then once you're there, you have to verify that your patient's location is actually correct. Mike and I often get dispatched to, they're on this trail somewhere between this point and this point. because the injured party themselves don't know exactly where they're at. So when Mike and I roll up, we have to determine exactly where you are so that when we call for resources, they know exactly where to go. Particularly if we're trying to call in a helicopter to do some sort of hoist operation. I can't just say, hey, I'm on the west side of the hill. Come find me. People from 5,000 feet are not visible. So, so land navigation is not just about can I read a map and compass to get myself on the correct trail and go to where I need to go? You really have to know where you're at in the woods and be able to determine that with a fair degree of accuracy. Because a lot of things ride on that if you can't. No, you right, do, so, right? If, yeah. If you're working in a particular area, you should know the most prevalent trails and you should, you should be comfortable with them. You should be hiking them or spending time on them when you're not on a rescue so that you're generally familiar with the region you're working in at all times. Yeah, exactly. That's a great analogy. And so that brings us into the second part, right? So you're medically sound, you've got your skills. Number two, and this is the one that Mike and I see trip people up all the time when they first think they're going to get into this wilderness and austere game, physical fitness. Now, I'm not saying you've got to be able to go out there and win the CrossFit World Series and I can do the most as fastest game, but you have to be fit, right? It's not just enough that I can jog a couple of miles and not die. You actually have to maintain a certain level of fitness. And a lot of that is predicated on your environment, where you work, the 
you know, how much elevation gain do you have to deal with? How much up, how much down do I have to work with? What are the temperature extremes I'm going to be in? Mike and I, we have a very strange, unique environment out here. It could be 22 in the morning and 85 in the afternoon. So we, we can have some very wild temperature swings. So we've got to be kitted properly. But I have to be fit enough that I can operate anywhere in the cold through the hot environments. Now for us in the summer, July, August, temperatures in the 90s, humidity levels in the high 90s. Should it be raining? You'd think so at this point. We're 100% saturation, but it's not. But you have to be able to operate in that. And that's not just something you can go to the Gold's Gym, your 24-hour fitness, do a few sets of bench and some squats and get to that level, right? There are a couple of, we'll call them metrics that are used out there. One of those is the Wildland Fire Pack Test, the Arduous Test. Well, I think SARM now is under Arduous. It used to be under the Moderate. It, it depends on the test. level of, of SAR function you're performing, but yeah. I mean, it's, it's a test. It's like any other test. Well, it sucks mildly. So the arduous pack it's test. It's hard. It's just arduous. Hear people talk to. Yeah, it's, it's a 45-pound pack that you have to carry over three miles of, really, it's relatively flat terrain. It's not supposed to be any significant elevation gain or terrain you're dealing with in, God, it's like 45, it's 45 minutes. minutes. Yeah. Right? It's so 45. you get 15 minutes per mile, which... It's 15 minute miles, but you can't, you always have to have one foot on the ground. You can't run. Yeah. You cannot run it. It must be at a walking, as Mike stated, one foot always on the ground pace. And the theory behind that is if you were involved in wildland firefighting, you don't run from the fire because that could increase your chance of tripping, falling and getting hurt and then being engulfed by the fire. But they want you to be able to move a certain distance with your kit on to clear a potentially hazardous fire zone. So that's probably one of the more common physical fitness tests that is used out there. Is that the best test? No, it means I can carry a moderately heavy pack over relatively fat terrain. And I did it once a year. Mike and I usually will execute this at the beginning of each season just to tell our people that, yep, we can do this. And they're like, super sounds good. But it doesn't really, that, that's all it means is you did it once. So you need to have a certain level of cardiovascular fitness. Now, I'm not saying you have to be able to go out there and run a 5K in 20 minutes or less, but you should have the ability to don your SAR pack. And we're going to say your SAR pack plus another. 10 to 15% of that in weight, assuming you have to carry additional supplies, whether that's ropes, rigging equipment, extra water, food, extra materials for patient care. So if your baseline SAR pack is 25, 35 pounds, you should be able to get up to at least a 50 pound pack and move that without issue in your environment for, I would say, at least three to five miles. Yep, that sounds about right. It's probably worth note that the fitness tests for fitness tests, you can measure yourselves a bunch of different ways. Sean wrote a, I consider it to be a pretty in-depth fitness standard for us some time ago when we were working on these things. I don't remember everything it was, but you had done like two miles over uneven terrain with a 35-pound kettlebell, couldn't change hands, couldn't set it down. I don't remember what all of your criteria now, was. So I basically used the pack test, although it used it it was three-ish miles, but it was on one of the established trails in the area we work. And so there was up and down, there was elevation and terrain you had to deal with. You got back from that. There was what we called the patient carry portion of the test, which is what Mike was talking about, where it was uh, assuming you were part of a six-man litter team. I believe it was a 40 or 45-pound kettlebell. You had to pick up, walk 500 meters one direction, place it, switch hands, and then walk back with it. You know, and that was essentially to simulate you having to be on the litter for a little bit doing a change of hands, but carrying what we were going to call your fair share of the load. Although if anybody's ever been on a Stokes, you know that there's no equal carrying of the load. Some have more, some have less. 
And then there's just a couple other items that were mixed in with that, just to kind of provide what we'll call a more realistic appraisal of someone's fitness test for the work. Again, it wasn't an all-inclusive, this is going to be the end-all be-all, because you get to a certain point and then you're doing special operations selection where it's like, you're going to take your pack and you're going to carry it for this many miles and you're going to do a max set of pull-ups and then this many more miles than push-ups and do all kinds of crazy stuff. You got to drive a line somewhere. Tennessee we know of. Right. And so you got to make a realistic assessment because you have to know who your target audience is. If you want to have volunteers, you need to make it something that people can reasonably attain. And what we did was something that if you trained for it and you were fit, it wasn't going to be an issue. It should be something that we would expect a member of our team to go out and be able to do any day of the week. This wasn't a once a year train for it and then be able to do it kind of thing. This was, you should be able to do this every weekend you come up for duty. So there are, like I said, there there are a lot of test options out there. If you want to figure out what yours should be, pick something, make it as hard as you want it to be, and then wonder why you can't maintain members of your group. You can train them up (laughs) and you can expect people to get there, but at the same time, you have to have some realistic expectations. So cardiovascular fitness, we kind of talked about that. Muscular endurance. There is you know, essentially two types of strength you need. You need strength endurance, and then you need actual, what would be called limit strength. Like you need to be able to physically pick up once or twice a heavy load. You have to be able to deadlift 400 pounds to do this work. No, but yeah, (laughs) Sean's personal opinion. But should I be able to take and be able to pick up a 35 pound pack, pick it up and move it multiple times? Yes. And that can be simulated as we're on a scene somewhere and we're doing rigging and I have to keep moving rigging gear up and down, back and forth, different points or moving other people's gear or patient equipment. My pack, I have to just keep picking it up and moving it because we're doing something different now. So you have to be able to do that bit of repetition. Your legs is going to be your number one for your strength endurance, right? You got to be able to put that pack on. And there's a couple of trails, Mike and I work, where there are literally stone steps and they only go up. We never ever seem to be able to go down. And so you have to be able to basically climb that Stairmaster for an hour or more. And if your legs aren't up to it, it's terrible. It sucks. When you get done with your evolution, you're going to be incredibly sore and in a lot of pain for many, many days. So you have to have the strength endurance to carry your load to get to your patient. Same thing with, you know, a little bit upper body stuff. Nobody's ever gotten on scene and had to bust out 50 quick push-ups for any reason that I could ever think of. Right? So you have to have cool. some raw strength. And that helps you picking up and maneuvering your patient, whether it's into the basket or maneuvering the basket itself. There are some places that where we're carrying the patient in the litter and you get to a very narrow choke point. And basically, you have to have an attendant on the front and one at the feet and both basically are doing a power clean to get that litter up and out of the way of the obstacle. And just the two of you are kind of muscling it up and over and moving it independently and then you can get it back down and get everybody else going. So you need a bit of good limit strength. Again, you're, you're not having to have to be able to deadlift 400 or clean 250 pounds, bench your body weight times 10. Nothing like that. But you have to have a good physical fitness baseline. You have to be strong and you have to have a good base for cardiovascular fitness. And if you'd like more our thoughts on that, you can shoot us an email or contact us on our social media and we'll be happy to give you a little bit more detail. We have all kinds of great ideas on um, things you can do to be better at this stuff. And, and lastly... I mean, let's be honest. One of these days we're going to record a video and... Nobody is going to be like, holy cow, those guys are a couple of specimens. But <laughs> this is true. Yeah, you know, we're, we're both a couple of middle-aged dudes. Yeah. But, uh, yeah. I'm yeah, 50 the, and I'm still bringing it. But <laughs> the reality uh, is it's not about being like an eight-pack rocking, like going to the gym, looking swole sort of specimen. But endurance 
and the ability to perform work over a long period of time in relatively crappy environments is really kind of the unit of measure you should be aspiring to. Yeah. And the last piece with that, I will say, is your ability to recover. And I mean recovery on scene. So you just hiked two, three, four, five miles, maybe more. I don't know where you work. Into your patient. How fast or how soon after you arrive on scene are you able to, and I mean this literally, are you able to begin work on your patient? If you can't basically roll up and within five minutes be able to start an IV, that requires a bit of fine motor dexterity, your ability to find veins, do work through some small motor skills, you should think about your fitness program, right? If it takes you 15, 20 minutes of huffing and puffing and chugging water next to your patient, A, you're not looking like the kind of guy they want coming to save the day, and B, you're delaying patient care, and that's not what you're there for. I will give a shameless plug for Strong First and the work those guys do. I am a kettlebell man. You can ask Mike. I have been for as long as he knows me. Uh, you made me a kettlebell man, damn it, Sean. Um, so, and again, shameless plug. Again, they're not sponsoring us. They don't even know we're mentioning their name. But the ability with the programs, and you have to pick the right programs. Again, it's not something you just pick one and you're, that's the right one. You have to pick the programs going to help provide you with some of that endurance, strength endurance, limit strength, and the ability to recover. And so once you get on scene, within five minutes, you should be like, all right, let's do this. What do we got? Where are we at? And start doing work. So essentially, by the time whoever got there before you is done giving you their patient handover, you should be ready to go, right? And it's not an easy skill to do, but it's, in my opinion, of the fitness pieces, one of the most important. That's actually a really good unit of measure, right? So by the time you are done receiving a two or three minute patient handoff, you should be recovered from whatever exertion you were outputting to get to where you are, and you should be ready to start performing at that higher level of care that you are bringing if you're bringing a higher level of care to the patient's side so that the patient receives the best care possible without preferably waiting for you to be ready to take care of them. That's exactly it. All right, so tying on a little bit with physical fitness is our mental resiliency. This is kind of the new topic du jour that's come up a lot with COVID is provider mental resiliency. We're not going to go deep into that. There are, there are a lot of programs out there and a lot of better resources than Mike or I that are going to talk about this. But things you need to think about, and a lot of this is mental preparation, things you need to be thinking about before you get into this game, things you need to think about while you're doing your work, etc. is generally speaking, once the call goes out, that's it. You don't get a break. There's no more, right? It's not like I just turned over my patient. I can hang out in the hospital, like in the EMS room for 20 minutes and do my chart and drink Mountain Dew and eat a Snickers bar and then head on out back out the door. I know some of you out there who run Urban EMS are like, oh my God, you get 20 minutes to write charts? No, not always, but sometimes, mm-hmm. right? Urban EMS, there's always, even if it's a little break, there's always a little break. Generally speaking, once you've hit your patient in the wilderness and austere environment, you're out there, you're with your patient. Now, it's not like you're having to do CPR and run ACLS for 15 hours, right? It's not like you're super mentally taxed, but you don't get to turn off the switch. You have to stay on your game the entire time you're with your patient. Because what could have been the benign, what you thought was a simple musculoskeletal injury at first, turned out to be much worse than you thought because, oh, they did fracture a rib and it did lacerate a liver or the spleen or a kidney, who knows, right? So your patient could be worse than you initially thought. And if you've shut yourself off and you're just too smoked to continue, that's going to be a problem, right? So you got to mentally prepare to be in the game for the duration, even if that is a long time. So you have to keep your patient self and your patient motivated. And that kind of goes into what I was just talking about there, right? You're in the game. You both got to keep yourselves motivated, 
try to keep each other, we'll say, happy. There are some patients who are just not going to be happy no matter what you do for them, unless you sedate them and give them ketamine and they just wake up in an ambulance going, man, that was amazing. You guys are the best. And it's like, you're welcome. Right. And it's only because they don't realize that they spent four and a half hours, six hours bouncing up and down a trail. I mean, we've had patients who complain nonstop with us for even the shortest amount of times. And any of our urban EMS friends out there that ride regular trucks, you know exactly what we're talking about. You get berated for 15, 20 minutes by patients that absolutely hate you. They drop you off at the hospital and they're like, your best friend, thank you so much. And you're just like, dude, get bent. Right. We have patients that are also at the other end of that spectrum that are super happy and like, hey, I'm really sorry, but this is going to be very painful when we do this for you. Don't you worry about it. I'm just so happy you're here. You guys are amazing. And it's like, okay, but I don't think you understand. This is really going to hurt. And they're like chipper and happy the whole time. Those are the best ones. They're easy to deal with. And what I like about the happy patients is when they're no longer happy, you should probably start paying attention to what's going on, right? Because if they're no longer happy, is it they're just getting tired and hungry? Or maybe you should start looking at maybe do they need some, some pain relief? Maybe that mild, broken something is actually really starting to bother them. And they're no longer talking a lot because they're just gritting their teeth in pain now. So pay attention if those changes happen. You have to deal with this entire situation, right? There's not just the one part you have to deal with. The essential we'll call it the call is yours to deal with from the moment you get on trail until you turn over care to somebody else. You have to be able to make critical decisions the entire time. There's not any one point in that thing once you've made patient contact. And I will say even once you've gotten on trail to begin movement to your patient, because while you're moving to the patient, you might start getting questions like, hey, what else do you need? And a lot of times that's a difficult one because it's like, well, I'm not there yet. I don't know yet. You may only have a BLS level provider that's on scene right now. They've given you what seems to be a pretty good patient update and a good patient report. But until you get there to confirm it, you kind of have to just go with what you know. And maybe you don't have enough information to start making those calls of, hey, should we launch the helicopter? Well, I got two more hours of walking, so probably not yet. Let's, let's hold off on that one. But you still have to be able to think about that, right? You have to know where you're at, right? How far away am I from my patient? There we go, back to land navigation. Before people start telling you these things. That was a big one that Mike mentioned uh, at the beginning of the show. We just did a rescue a week ago, and we were using another ground ambulance service was going to pick up the patient from us and transport to the hospital. And people are like, all right, let us know when you're a half hour out. We'll let that crew know, and then they'll show up so they're not just, those crews got to be used somewhere else for somebody else, and we can't just have them waiting for us in a parking lot for six hours, right? Well, the guy who was wanting to make that 30-minute call wasn't exactly sure where the 30-minute point was. We were pretty close to it, but you got to know that because you got to be able to make that decision point. And realistically, you've just got to be close when it comes to things like that. 30 minutes, 45 minutes, which is probably closer to where they were at the time. It's just one of those things. You got to know where you're at and you got to be able to make that call still. Once you get on scene, you're only going to have a couple of minutes to do your quick patient assessment and start determining what additional resources you're going to need. Because if it's a larger rescue operation, And for us, they will establish incident command, go through the full ICS procedures. Once that incident commander steps in and establishes command, they're going to want to start getting updates and start coordinating additional resources. So you have to be able to make those critical decisions. Like you've just finished hiking three miles. You just met your patient. Maybe you've done a couple of interventions or you've just done a full assessment and decided the interventions that are being completed are sufficient for now. Now it's like, okay, can we hoist? Where do we hoist? Where's your nearest hoist point? 
What do we need to do? What additional resources are needed? Do we need more ALS? Do we need a ground ambulance? Can a ground ambulance be BLS? Does it need to be ALS, et cetera, right? You have to be able to think these things through and you have to make the answers. Could they change? Absolutely, right? So, so yeah, critical decision-making. Yeah, you, you, mentally, you have to stay in the game. And that's the biggest one. And as Mike mentioned earlier, you have to be able to take care of yourself. So if you aren't, we'll say, mentally resilient, these four-hour to 18-hour, and for some of you, these could be days-long patient contacts, they're going to wear on you. They're going to make you tired. If you're even like Mike and I have had overnight with some patients and when our compadres leave us behind and it's just the two of us, well, there's just two of us that have to wake up periodically through the night to maintain contact with the patient and check in on them. If your patient simply had a broken ankle, you just need to wake up now and again, just confirm that, yep, they're still here and yep, they're still breathing. I don't really have to do much else, right? Now, we had one patient who was potentially having a fairly significant medical issue. So we had to wake up at night and just check on him physically, like, you know, hey, when's the last time he urinated? Let me see your bottle, you know, looking for blood in his urine and things like that, just to see, are you getting better or worse kind of things. That can make for a very long night. Now, it was good for me because Mike was with me, so he had two paramedics on scene, but it could have been just me or it could have been me and an EMT or a first responder. If you have two paramedics, that's great because two of you can split that ALS game. But if you have just the one paramedic provider or one ALS provider and another provider of a lower certification level, there might be some things they can't really help. So mentally, you're just going to be exhausted by the end of the evolution. So you need to be able to mentally take care of yourself. You need to be able to, at the completion of the mission, mentally decompress as necessary. And this is just as it would be with any of our urban friends. You know, you have those really bad calls where it's like, wow, that was some, some shit. And you had to deal with it for hours, vice, a much shorter period of time. So a death for us out in the woods isn't the quick, oh, he's dead. Cool. Nope. Asystole, no movements. You call your, your hospital, you get whatever approval it is you need to do to call your DOA, and you're done with the gay. Well, guys like Mike and I and other providers doing this wilderness austere thing, you might have to sit with the body for a considerable amount of time until additional resources get up there to package the body, transport them out, etc. And I will guarantee you that dead bodies don't get helicopters right? That's going to be a carryout. And there's a bit of a psychological thing that goes along with having to sit with a dead body for 6, 12, 18 hours, depending on how long you have. Fortunately, I haven't had to do that in quite some time, but it, it drains and it wears on some people. It just stresses them out. So there's some of the other mental resiliency pieces that I'd say are, are just like they are for any other EMS provider out there. You just need to be aware of and, and take the heart just because you're in the woods and things are happy most of the time because you're doing it in an environment you love. You know, you got to be able to take care of yourself. So at the end so of the day... I guess day, the big question is kind of the lead up to the whole nine yards, isn't it? Yeah, it is. Can anybody do this? Yeah. And if you ask Mike and I, we both are of the opinion that no, this is not a, this is not a thing for everyone. Is it open it's to... Not, a, it's not that anybody can't do it, but you have to commit yourself to being good at it. You have to commit yourself to being capable and maintaining that skill set, both physically and mentally, to do the job. Uh, people that want to do this work tend to be drawn to it. Yeah. I've met a lot of providers in my day that I've, I've met uh, providers from a unit long before I was a, well, not long before, but before I was a paramedic where maybe we needed a paramedic on this one. And they came on a transport unit and we looked at them in their blue pants and their blue shirt and said, guess what, dude, you're coming with us. And they went, what, yeah. what are you talking about? I don't go in the woods. You bring them to me, buddy. Yeah. So that the people a... that are good at this tend to be called to it, but it is not a game for everybody. And it's okay to say that this isn't for you. Yeah. And that's, and uh, that kind of goes back to one of our early episodes, talking about the different 
wellness provider levels, like wellness first aid, wellness first responder. If you think this is something you want to get into and you've never done any of this before, take one of those courses, just kind of get a look at it. They're not going to take you in those courses. Well, a wellness first responder might actually take you in a remote location and give you a multi-hour scenario to work through. But at least uh, having attended one of those courses will kind of give you an idea of what some of this is about. And Mike and I, throughout the year, each host varying levels of interest in ride-alongs that want to come up and spend a day or a weekend with us and see what it is we do. So far, I don't think we've had anybody that's returned. We have one that we, wants to make a comeback. We'll, we'll see what happens. Yeah. And we'll see, that, we'll see what, the, what the future holds. Right. And so a lot of times it's, it sounds great and people want to do it. But then, yeah, like Mike said, if you're not committed, it's, it's difficult. And I think one of the things that is most difficult for folks is just like when Mike and I were, were doing search and rescue, is everybody join that SAR team thinking they're going to repel out of helicopters into remote places in the mountains and search for some lost, injured hiker, do some extreme medical care, and then hoist them out and ride helicopters back out of the mountains. And then when I realized that it's long hours out in really bad weather searching for, for a lot of times, an Alzheimer's patient, it kind of lost its luster and they lose interest in it. It's an absolutely valuable resource and skill that is needed. I mean, People that are lost and injured in the woods, it doesn't matter why they are, need help. And just because you didn't get to do the cool insert doesn't mean you shouldn't be doing that work, right? I've transported more teams in my Subaru than I ever rode in a helicopter for these operations, right? So mentally, you just have to prepare yourself that Mike and I have weekends where we don't do a single thing, right? It's awesome. We will sit up there on duty, in service, ready to go, packs loaded, gear set up, and we don't do a thing for three days. And it's, it's a little sad and we get bored and we're like, oh, we're never coming back. And then we're right back for the next duty weekend because we always are. Every year we go up is our last year we're going up and we keep going up because we love what we do. But you got to be committed to it, right? If we weren't committed, believe me, we would not keep going and do this because the benefit to doing it beyond just doing this work and the environment we do it in is, is not enough for a lot of people. No, it's not. But I will say from my perspective, while we don't see the high volume of the high acuity calls per se, we do get high acuity calls just like any other EMS provider. Mm-hmm. Um, the reward and the benefit and the impact that you get to have on a person's, on the outcome for a patient and on a patient's life, it's kind of a big deal to break your kneecap walking down the street in downtown Wherebersville, America that you live, trip on a, on a rock, shatter a kneecap, and end up having to get a ride to the hospital and then, you know, six, eight, ten months worth of rehab and some construct, reconstructive surgery to put a fake kneecap in there for you. It's a totally different world for that patient when they're, uh, they're six miles away from the nearest road and they have no idea how they're getting out of there. And they just got lucky that a passerby came upon them and then hiked out to go call for help because they don't have cell service. And the, the gratitude and the, the opportunity to really help people that are in a pretty tight bind is pretty rewarding, even though it doesn't exactly pay a bazillion dollars a year. Yeah, so far it's paid me zero. There's always hope. But no, Mike, that's, that is such a valid point, right? The, even the most minor injury that you and I have come across, I don't know how many times, you know, and Mike and I, because orthopedic injuries are the number one thing you see yeah, for us in the wilderness area we work with and, you know, with people hiking and backpacking and things. You just see that's the majority of it. And what for, in our regular urban ambulances, would almost be a BLS level call. When we roll up on scene in our big backpacks and our 
shirts with rescue or SAR or whatever it is, people are absolutely ecstatic that an adult came to save them. And even though what the injuries, Mike and I would look at it and be like, eh, whatever, this is easy. Let's do this. Let's, let's split that thing up. Let's get you rolling. The people that we respond to because they know they're in a place where ambulances don't just drive across the street and pick them up are generally very happy that you're there and very appreciative. And that is probably one of the bigger perks of working this in the wilderness side like we do. It's for the most part, the people that we deal with are extremely happy we're there for them and help them in these situations, especially we'll say it's not so much the ones in the summer months when the weather's good. It's like we had a week ago, this early early spring, cold, drizzly weather. If it weren't for us, this patient would have sat there in the rocks, hobbling around, waiting for people to help him out and would have eventually gotten rained on and would have just been a miserable experience. But the patient got lucky. There were enough responders available, which is was luck in and of itself based on the time of year we were working and got out in a relatively quick time frame. And he was super happy about that. And, you know, he was one of those happy patients and really appreciated all the work we put into it. But at the same time, there are some of the other volunteer groups we've worked with have gone up there and they train for these rescues and it's supposed to be one of their primary bread and butter kind of things. And we've seen them finish the rescue and be like, well, that was hard. We're going home now. And it's kind of like, yeah. wow. what, what do you mean? Yeah. And it's like, and so you can't discount that even this one rescue or any other rescue, it takes a toll on you. Right. And so that's one of those things you got to be prepared for. We talked about the fitness and the mental resiliency, but that's why not everybody can necessarily do it. Like, you might be an amazing paramedic. You could be this top-notch flight medic who's got critical care experience for decades. And I strap a pack to you and you're like, but wait a minute, this is heavy. Medically, yeah, you're great. You're ready. You, you know your materials. Like you know your patients, you know your pathophys, you know your meds. But what you don't know is that you can hike up a trail for three miles uphill the whole way because everybody goes uphill. Nobody ever wants to be downhill from somewhere. Everything always goes up. And then get to your patient and then do work and then have to help carry your patient back out, right? So again, just because you're a great provider doesn't necessarily mean you're going to be a great wilderness provider. There's a lot more that goes into it than just the medical piece. The medical knowledge is, in my opinion, right next to fitness. Like, it, it's the number one thing you have to have because you, like Mike mentioned, you, you don't get to phone a friend. So the disposition to do it, just not everybody has. It. Yeah, it, it just kind of is. All right, well... I, I trying to get any other thoughts? No, I would just say that, you know, we talked about kind of our, our big four, right? Medically, you've got to be solid. You know, your trauma skills obviously have to be up to par. If they're not, you shouldn't be on a truck or a unit anywhere. But your your medical skills, your pathophys, knowing your patients and what's going to be happening and be able to forecast what may happen to them is absolutely paramount to being a good austere provider. Skills mastery for your environment. You got to know where you're working. You got to know what skills you need for that environment. And you've got to be good at them. You can't just read about them once and say, I'm good. You got to know them, right? Oh, good one. The shelter piece. Yeah, I can build a small shelter for myself. Super. You have a patient. Can you build a shelter suitable for your patient to be in? In a position where you might not be able to move your patient, right? So some of that skills master, you got to be able to not just build a shelter for yourself or bivouac yourself overnight. You have to be able to take care of your patient with it. Physical fitness, we're kind of beat that one. Go strong first. And uh, <laughs> you got to be mentally resilient, right? Yeah. And of course, if, if you're a fan of CrossFit or any other programs out there, by all means, stick with them. If it works for you, do it. I just know it works for me and I drank the Kool-Aid. So that's all I got, Mike. Yeah, brother. All right. Well, I think we'll call this one a wrap. Pretty good episode, I think, all in all. 
Uh, we look forward to sharing some additional details with everybody on on how to get into this game if you really feel like this is it. I think this is episode 11. I, I might be wrong after I'm done editing all the things, but we're about a dozen episodes in, give or take, and, and we're just getting started. So I hope you guys are strapping in. We got a lot more information coming. Thanks. If you have any questions or comments or ideas for show topics, you can send us an email at the show at emsonthemountain.com or hit us up on social media. We can be found on Facebook and Instagram at EMS on the Mountain, Twitter at EMSOTM, or you can engage with us and a whole community of wilderness EMS professionals at locals.com slash wilderness EMS. Until the next episode, thanks for joining us. And until we see you on the mountain, train hard, be safe, and do good work.